Hello, thanks for joining us for this Graduate Roundtable podcast on the aspects of the Spanish Civil War in the Americas. We're going to discuss how this event impacted the histories of regions and countries outside Europe by focusing on the USA, Mexico and the South American continent. Our participants will respond to some pertinent questions to expose the importance of the Spanish War in global history. I'm Jordan Buchanan and I will convene this discussion with Charlotte Eaton, Kevin Aguilar and Austin Clements. Charlotte, can you start off the introductions, please? Of course. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Charlotte Eaton and I am a PhD student in the International History Department of the London School of Economics. And Jordan, as you've just mentioned, my PhD project looks at the Spanish Civil War in South America, particularly in Colombia. Thanks, Austin, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, and uh, echoing what Charlotte said, thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here and I'm excited to be part of this podcast. So my name is Austin Clements. I'm a second year PhD student at the Department of History at Stanford University, uh, where I study 20th century United States history with an emphasis on religion and politics and right-wing ideology more broadly. My uh, current research focuses on the interwar period, specifically looking at the religious origins of anti-communism in the United States. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. My name is Kevin Aguilar and I'm a PhD candidate in Latin American history at the University of California, San Diego. And my doctoral research examines the social and political relationships that emerged between Mexicans and Spanish exiles following the end of the Spanish Civil War. Thanks for those introductions. Um, so a quick rationale for this podcast but this is to increase the public awareness of the global aspects of a war that we often consider as a local event. Although knowledge is growing of the international brigades that went to Spain to fight for and against fascism, this podcast will explore how this conflict shaped politics and societies outside Spain and Europe. Consequently, we hope to encourage the understanding of the Spanish Civil War in global perspective, as well as inspire citizens to think of how local events shape our global existence. And Austin, if you would like to share uh, your ideas on the, the, the value of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really like the idea of this podcast as a means of engaging in public history. It's a great way to get academic research, which too often is housed with inside the ivory towers between a bunch of like-minded individuals and get it out into the world between those or to share with those who would feel very interested in this sort of research in this information, but might not have access to it otherwise. And it's a means of public engagement from historians like ourselves who love to share our research and who love to talk about it um, and to get it out there to the good folks and the general public. Thanks. So in order to understand the, the themes and ideas that we're gonna talk about, uh, Kevin's gonna quickly introduce uh, some of these concepts connected to the Spanish Civil War. Sure, so just to give a, a really broad overview, the Spanish Civil War began in July 1936 after a military coup against the democratically elected Republican government. And it's quickly led into an all out civil war which was predominantly divided into two factions. On the one hand, you had the supporters of the military uprising known as the Nationalists, which was comprised of military and civilians that supported a variety of different political movements including conservatives, monarchists, and fascists. And the nationalists had received support uh, from Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, 
despite the League of Nations calling um, uh, upholding a non-intervention policy throughout the conflict, which was much to the detriment of the Republican government. And on the other side, you had the Loyalists, which were comprised of a coalition known as the Popular Front, and that included Republicans, Socialists, Communists, and Anarchists, as well as thousands of foreign volunteers known as the International Brigades. And the result of the Civil War had ended in April 1939 with the collapse of the Loyalist uh, defenses and the dissolution of the Republican government and eventually would lead to the rise of the military dictatorship of Francisco Franco. Um, and in total, over a half million people died during the Civil War and between a quarter to a half million people were forced into exile. And it's, it's often known as being kind of a predecessor to World War II uh, and while the Civil War had a lot of uh, characteristics that were very specific to Spain, uh, a lot of scholars are looking at it now as a much more indicative mo uh, moment in world history, which a lot of the same issues are coming up throughout not only Europe, but other parts of the world. So the results of the economic and political instability caused by the Great Depression, the, ten the tensions that emerged through the secularization of the state in a in a predominantly Catholic country, uh, which is also something that happens in Mexico. You have the rural urban divide in a country that's still largely agrarian yet slowly industrializing, as well as the rise of political movements, radical political movements, both on the left and the right. So on the one hand, the influence of communism and anarchism was very prominent throughout the Civil War. And on the other hand, you had uh, the influence of fascism as well. And so, yeah, I think that's about a general blip of the Civil War. Okay, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, so I'll give a quick overview, we'll move on to the questions, I'll give a quick overview of the questions that we're going to ask. So in each of the countries and regions that you focus on, I'm going to ask on why the Spanish Civil War is relevant there, uh, how do the themes of religion and politics influence the history of those places, uh, how does your doctoral research project fit into these larger narratives, and then I'll move on to ask each individual a specific question in relation to their research and experience. And I'll conclude with uh, why this history matters for modern society. So to start off the questions then, first question, if Austin can respond first would be, why is the Spanish Civil War relevant in the, your country of focus? Yeah, well, that's a great question because if you ask most United States historians, it's really not um, a major event, right? Uh, David and M. Kennedy, in his Pulitzer Prize winning Freedom from Fear devotes two pages out of his like 800 plus volume to the conflict, concluding that most Americans could not have cared less. As I argue in my research, however, the Spanish Civil War is the moment when the danger of communism becomes manifest, right? American Christians and Catholics in particular had since before the Russian Revolution been arguing that socialism and communism were antithetical to God. This is most readily apparent in uh, Leo XIII's 1891 encyclical. And this slaughter of, of Catholic clergy that comes after the elections of 1931 and, and precipitates and then eventually explodes um, during the Spanish Civil War proved the point that for American Catholics at least, uh, that made communism in their eyes appear a greater danger than even fascism or Nazism. So from this point forward, uh, the American right and in the post-World War II period, even conservatives are more than willing to put up with the right wing or fascistic or authoritarian dictator in lieu of 
um, communism. So in this case, Francisco Franco, um, but later on like Pinochet in Chile is another famous example, rather than to allow communism uh, to take hold in, in their respective countries. And this is what a point that uh, historian Patrick Allett says this becomes a foreign policy of liberation rather than containment. This idea that Americans are freeing uh, these nations from the, the grasp of communism or allowing them in the case of Franco and the Spanish Civil War to free themselves. Uh, the United States famously remained neutral during the conflict, keeping an arms embargo in place that had been put there um, in agreement with France and Great Britain. And the pro-Franco agitators in the United States didn't want to send people off to fight in the international brigades with Franco, um, like the loyalists did. And there's famously the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, right? That goes out to fight. Um, you think of Ernest Hemingway and for whom the bell tolls or Adam Hoss Childs for Spain in our hearts. Francoites in the United States did not want to send people to go and fight. Their goal was to make sure that the embargo was kept in place so that the United States would not ship arms over to the loyalist side. And that way Franco and his fascist and Nazi allies would be able to clean up. Thanks. So, Kevin, how does the Civil War relate to Mexican history? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think that Mexico and Spain had a lot of similar uh, social conflicts and political conflicts going on around the same time. Both went through moments of violent civil conflicts uh, regarding radical reforms being initiated by, uh, initiated by left-leaning governments. And you also have the issue that a lot of this was very religiously motivated where you have a large sector of the population uh, that is very uh, Catholic and viewing a lot of these reforms as kind of as what Austin was saying, it's this attack on the religious liberties of the citizenry. However, in my research, I found that a lot of Mexican citizens from working class and peasant backgrounds were actually very supportive of the refugee of the Spanish Civil War and the subsequent refugee initiative that Mexico implemented. And it's interesting to note that despite uh, a lot of countries imposing non-interventionist policies, uh, Mexico and the Soviet Union were the only countries that uh, supported the Spanish Republican government uh, through selling of arms and resources. And Mexico was the only country in the Americas to establish a formal mass relocation initiative to provide asylum for political refugees after the Civil War. And this to me is especially interesting since Mexico was a former colony of Spain up until the 19th century. And it's the only time in world history that we've seen a post-colonial nation provide political asylum for residents of its former colonial metropole. And so I can go into that a little bit later, but it, I think it's a really interesting moment in both Mexican and Spanish history that uh, hasn't really gotten enough, even though there's a lot of research about the Spanish Republicans and, and Spanish refugees in Mexico, it really hasn't been understood from an internationalist perspective and more broadly in a transnational lens. Thanks, we'll look forward to hearing the rest of the, the progress of your research and the other questions. So Charlotte, if you can also give us uh, the relevance of this for South America and your uh, case study. Of course, thank you. Yeah, and I think this is such an important question because um, I suppose echoing what both Austin and Kevin have said, for a long time, the, the focus of the Spanish Civil War has been um, specifically 
on Europe, perhaps like on the United States in terms of the international brigades that uh, were sent over from there, which is understandable given the geopolitics of the time, the kind of politics, the policy of appeasement that uh, Britain and France were carrying out and the oncoming of the Second World War. But it has meant that South America, as it sounds the case to be with Mexico and also the US, ha has been largely ignored in this historiography um, because they weren't perceived to be directly involved in the Spanish conflict, either in terms of sending mass contingents of volunteers or in terms of the, the politics of non-intervention. Yet the Spanish Civil War was actually very relevant in, in South America. And um, this was both direct and indirect. And I think um, Austin and Kevin have kind of spoken, given overviews of, of the indirect relevance of the Spanish Civil War to um, American nations in general. So I suppose speaking to the direct relevance, um, the, the, in, in the 1920s and 1930s in Southern America, um, in, in regional fora, they were discuss discussing important issues such as, for example, the uh, right to asylum. And uh, these were important, both regional and uh, subsequently international issues of, um, of, of lust, uh, justice and law. And it, within this context, the Spanish Civil War broke out and became really a platform for the South American nations to try out these new ideas that they were discussing um, in the region. And so therefore many of the diplomatic issues between Spain and the Spanish American republics were to do with the asylum that they offered to politically persecuted Spaniards in their diplomatic buildings in Spain. So Chile, for example, had a lot of issues firstly with the Spanish Republic and then with the Franco regime. Argentina also had issues as did many other of the Spanish republics. Um, but actually in terms of Colombia, which didn't have the same diplomatic issues, um, a source of diplomatic tension between the two countries was the murder of nine Colombians by leftist militia at the very start of the conflict. Uh, they were murdered in Barcelona. And Colombia sought and eventually received an indemnity for their murdered citizens. And I think the fact that the Republican government accepted this request, which was an unprecedented act by a government at the time, I mean, it was a, a, a government giving money to another government for the death or the murder of their citizens in, in this case, Spain. And this was uh, unheard of. And, you know, even since is, is uh, a very interesting study. And so as with the kind of, implications of the regional discussions of asylum, which played out in Spain, this um, issue of the indemnity has wider implications for the history of uh, transitional justice, for example. So, you know, um, the Spanish Civil War is very relevant in South America uh, because of the importance it had in the countries themselves, but it also, I believe, has a broader importance. Thanks everyone for sharing those. Uh those ideas of the, the importance of this war in this international perspective. Often when I speak to people about uh, the idea of the Spanish Civil War outside of Spain, you know, they get, they think that uh, it's irrelevant. So it's helpful to begin this conversation by establishing how, how this does matter 
across the American hemisphere. So for the next question, I'll keep with you, Charlotte. Um, so how do the themes of religion and politics influence the history of uh, South America and Colombia specifically? Uh, yeah, so again, a really interesting question. Um, both politics and religion were very important in the development of the Spanish Civil War in South America. And the latter I find particularly interesting because um, Southern American nations largely considered themselves to be Catholic nations, yet there was still significant support for the Spanish Republic. Um, and this is an intriguing nuance that I would like to tease out in my own research because um, the Catholic Church as an institution supported Franco because they bought into his narrative of the Spanish Civil War being a crusade against the religious Bolsheviks um, in defense of Christian civilization. And yet many South Americans for whom being Catholic was part of their identity actually supported the Spanish Republic. So perhaps by exploring the um, how the Spanish Civil War was perceived in uh, Southern American nations, we can challenge this assumption that um, Catholics in general supported Franco. And religion was actually particularly important in Colombia because in the 1930s, the church was still tied to the state. And this actually wasn't the case in, in many other Southern American nations, which had uh, written constitutions in the 19th century that separated the two. But in Colombia in the 1930s, the church was still a very important pillar of uh, of the, the society and of the state. And um, the liberal government that was in power when the Spanish Civil War broke out, which was under Alfonso Lopez Pumarejo, was actually trying to break these ties with a constitutional reform project that went wider than just this, but was particularly concerned with reducing the influence uh, and power that the Catholic Church had over education, for example. And obviously the Catholic Church was not very happy about this. And in all this uh, kind of this broader context and this conflict already going on within Colombia, the Spanish Civil War broke out and it became a tool for the, for the Catholic Church to attack the government and in particular the reforms. And I think this is something really that we really need to remember when we're looking at religion and politics and the Spanish Civil War in South America is that a lot of the time, the conflict was perceived by individuals on the ground according to their religious um, or political beliefs and was used by them to attack their opponents, be they political opponents or ideological opponents. Um, and that's something that I'm hoping to explore a lot further in my own research. Yeah, thanks. That was a, an interesting point you raised there between the relationship with the church and the state. That I know in the Mexican case, this you know in the Cristero War in the, in the 1920s leads to major conflict and uh, discontent within Mexican society because of that uh, disentanglement of uh, state and church. So it brings quite well onto Kevin and talking about this the themes of religion and politics of uh, and how those influence Mexico. Yeah, and just like you mentioned, Jordan, the the remnants of the Cristero Wars, which there was one in the late 1920s and then one uh, under the presidency of Lázaro Cárdenas in 
about from 1934 to 1936, where um, because of the various anti-clerical uh, reforms that were initiated during the Mexican Revolution, it brought the ire of Mexico's largely uh, Catholic population and resulted in a number of civil conflicts. And the Spanish Civil War created a circumstance in Mexican society where it seemed like there was going to be a third civil war due to these exact reasons, because proponents of the Spanish refugee initiative perceived that they needed to do the, the most, Mexico needed to protect other countries that were trying to uh, implement similar reforms as themselves as the anti-clerical reforms in, in Spain that were initiated under the second uh, Spanish Republic. Whereas opponents viewed it as uh, President Cardenas trying to bring in as they worded it, uh, godless Soviets or Spanish Reds. And so the, very much in the same vein as what Charlotte was bringing up, this idea around whether the Spanish Civil War represented a kind of religious war was very much prominent in the debates in Mexico as well. And it became especially prominent in a very rapidly growing peasant movement uh, that was called the Sinarquista movement, which took a lot from the kind of clerical fascism of the uh, Franco regime and specifically the fascist movement in Spain, the Falange, where it viewed the creation of a, a nationalist discourse based around its uh, Catholic identity. And what I found really interesting is when I was looking at debates around uh, and public petitions regarding the refugee initiative, both proponents and opponents used Catholicism and spirituality as uh, reasonings for their for their uh, ideological position on the Spanish refugee population. And so opponents, of course, argued that all the refugees were going to be godless atheists and Bolsheviks or, or anarchists. Whereas the proponents said that they needed to support Spain because Mexico and Spain had a shared cultural and spiritual relationship, which ironically is actually based from the fact that Spain had colonized Mexico. But at this time and through these internationalist lenses, they're reconceptualizing what those relationships mean and how to continue creating relationships to Spanish people um, outside of the context of colonialism and imperialism. But at the, at the end of it, they still have this broader tension that exists that there's a deep concern that the religious components of the Spanish Civil War are going to then be transferred into Mexican society with the introduction of Spanish refugees. Thanks. It's interesting to hear how these uh, this theme influences the different places despite their you know, major distances. And now it'd be interesting to know in the US context, moving away from Latin America, how the idea of religion and politics in the USA, how, how that shaped the history and its connection with the Spanish Civil War. So Austin, if you could uh, share your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really great about this podcast is just hearing how very similar these stories really are across their international context, right? When Charlotte was talking about Franco using Catholicism and religion to make his cause seem like a, a religious crusade, 
that's exactly what's going on in the United States, uh, specifically that language of uh, crusade against the enemies of Christendom, of Western Christendom and civilization. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, as another note from that, American Catholics in the United States were paying careful attention to Mexico during the Mexican Revolution as a confirmation of the dangers of communism. And that sort of gets revitalized during the Spanish Civil War. They keep pointing back to Mexico and saying, look what happened to Mexico um, with that anti-clerical violence. And also pointing to how close it is to American borders, that communism is not something happening across the Atlantic, but it's, it's very much here at our doors. So it's great to get these conversations together. Um, on a broader stroke, religion and politics and the Spanish Civil War, well, religion in the United States is at the core of interwar anti-communism, especially. It's, it's difficult to parse those two from one another. Everything that communism seems to stand for, whether it's the sovereignty of the state over the individual, whether it's the sovereignty of the state over God or religion, uh, the supposed destruction of traditional family, uh, the notion of you know, equality versus the uh, hierarchy and authority, uh, as, as God attended to, intended, seems to be an affront to God's commandments. Um, the separation of church and state, uh, Charlotte was talking about education as well. Uh, the removal of Catholic education um, is extremely important to American Catholics. Um, and American politics, moreover, is, is steeped in Christian religion. You know, Robert Bella famously called this in the 1960s, you know, the United States has a civil religion, a shared national Christian identity present in political speeches, rallies, and political events of all kinds. Um, and in the 1930s, American Catholics are using this to sort of bridge an ecumenical divide and say that the Spanish Civil War is really a war against religion, as Kevin was talking about. And it's a war against all Christians, not just Catholics. This is not successful um, in the Spanish Civil War, however. Um, a Catholics, American Catholics are still uh, a religious minority. They're growing in size, but in 1936, out of uh, uh, there's still a small percentage of the population. Um, a Catholic presidential candidate, Al Smith, uh, was defeated in the presidential elections of 1928. He lost to Herbert Hoover. Um, Hoover's campaign used familiar anti-Catholic tropes against Al Smith that had been present in American politics since its founding, uh, basically that Catholics are not capable of becoming American citizens because they're sovereign into a foreign um, leader, that is the Pope, um, that they would do basically whatever is requested of them by the Pope and are, therefore cannot be loyal American citizens. And American Catholics are caught in this bind because the Pope at the time actually sees American Catholics as not true Catholics. Um, one thing that the Pope is very concerned about in addition to communism is Wilsonian liberalism which also calls for the separation of church and state and has this international um, scope and ambition. Um, and as liberals, American Catholics then are not seen as true Catholics, then giving more importance to individuals over authority and hierarchy uh, as perceived by the Pope, um, as inviting communism into their ranks for that very reason. Uh, you know, a lot of the mindset is that liberalism invites communism uh, to the table, which is only seems to be proven by the Spanish Civil War um, in the minds of, of, Amer of, of Catholics across the globe. So American Catholics are trying to basically uh, straddle these two conflicting identities. On the one hand, they want to be seen as 
devout Catholic, but on the other hand, they want to be seen as loyal Americans. And the Spanish Civil War is a means of them basically saying that everything that is good about the United States, its religion, its values on the family, um, is what Franco was fighting for um, in Spain, and that to be a good Catholic is to be a good American. And so they use their religious identity as sort of a, a almost a, a, an inversion of their minority status to say, actually, this is what patriotism looks like. And that's actually pretty successful. And that sort of builds um, in the after the Civil War and throughout the Cold War, sort of redefining what patriotism is in contradistinction to communism. Thanks. It was really fascinating to hear how the, you know, the national and religious identities in the USA were, you know, distinct as USA is identified more as a Protestant nation uh, and the Catholics are a minority. It's interesting how that, how that develops there in the USA. And it was really interesting to hear the, the kind of quick switch of wording of the crusade, the, the Catholic crusade against communism to become a Christian crusade in order to capture the entire audience of the USA or the majority of the audience in the USA. Uh, so thanks for sharing that with us, Austin. Um, so we're going to go more into specifics now on the research that each of you are conducting. So beginning with Kevin, how does your doctoral research project fit into these larger narratives in the Spanish Civil War and its global perspective? Sure. So uh, while there's been a lot of research, especially in Mexican history regarding the diplomatic relationship between Mexico and the Spanish government, as well as some of the more prominent refugee communities, such as intellectuals, artists, um, and politicians, there's very little research been done on how everyday Mexican citizens viewed the Spanish Civil War specifically within the context of their own social revolution. So between 1910 and 1940, Mexico had its own revolution. And especially in the, the 1930s with the presidency of Lázaro Cárdenas, there was a, a resurgence of kind of revolutionary uh, ideas going on throughout society. And so with the Spanish Civil War breaks out, a lot of Mexican citizens, particularly from working class and peasant backgrounds are petitioning in support of the Spanish Republican movement. And it should be noted that amongst middle-class and upper-class Mexicans, uh, there was quite a number, uh, quite a bit of support for the nationalist side of the conflict. And there was a growing influence of Spanish fascism in Mexican society. And this was also due to the fact that Mexico had a very large Spanish immigrant population, which the vast majority of uh, supported the Francoist uprising. But what I was really interested in is looking at how during these moments of social upheaval, how Mexicans and Spaniards, Sp Spaniards reinterpreted their relationships to one another uh, within the context of the fact that, they, that Mexico did obtain independence from Spain and also within the early 20th century influence of internationalist politics. And I found that in both sides that people were very interested in reinterpreting the historical legacies between the two nations. And so specifically kind of challenging the historical injustices caused by colonialism on both sides 
to reimagine the relationships uh, through mutual aid and solida solidarity in the present. And two examples I really found interesting in my research was I uncovered a number of petitions from various indigenous and peasant communities in Mexico requesting that the Mexican government sp send Spanish refugees uh, to their communities to be given asylum. And what's particularly interesting about this is that they offered to put the Spaniards on within their communal land holdings, which are known as ajidos. And it's interesting because much of the, the, these communal land holdings were recently expropriated, uh, a lot of which were from Spanish immigrants that had been in the country for a number of years. And so it shows that, you know, even the most rural enclaves of Mexican society, there was communities that were reassessing their relationship uh, to Spanish people, uh, specifically within the political context of the time. And in Spain, uh, during some of the most heaviest uh, aerial bombardments in Barcelona in 1938, uh, various Spanish labor unions organized a week of Mexico celebration where it ended with uh, the Spaniards celebrating Mexican independence from Spain. And they constantly refer to the, these kind of injustices that happened during colonial era as the same injustices that occurred to the working class and peasant communities in Spain by capitalists throughout uh, the 19th and 20th century. So they're interpreting anti-capitalism as a form of uh, connection through anti-imperialism. And so even though they come from very different historical uh, in circumstances, they're trying to find and work within difference uh, with these historical, with the historical past of their country, as well as the future of their country when they are uh, sent to Mexico uh, and get granted asylum. And so I think it really gets us, uh, gives us a really great opportunity to reconceptualize the relationships between countries from the global south with the global north, especially in the early 20th century uh, through the lens of internationalism, which as a lot of more recent scholarship has been pointing out, there's internationalist tendencies not only in the left, but also in the right. And so how, do, how does Mexican society configure into those relationships and how do they reconcile them uh, with the insertion of Spanish refugees into, uh, throughout the country? Um, yeah, thank you. So um, unlike what Kevin was saying, um, big diplomatic histories haven't been written about the Spanish Civil War in Colombia. Um, in fact, not much has been written on it at all. Um, but much like what Kevin was saying he's exploring in his own research, I am particularly interested um, in how Colombians themselves perceived the Spanish Civil War and what that meant for Colombian society um, in the, the 1930s. So I suppose um, what I am hoping to do with my research because um, I'm currently a second year research student, but unfortunately because of the current situation, my own research has stalled. Um, so I can't speak too much about the uh, interesting stories from my research yet, although hopefully they will come. Um, but what I suppose what I'm hoping to do is 
use the Spanish Civil War as a lens to discuss what Colombians thought about their own country at the time. Um, in particular, how their commentary on the Spanish conflict revealed their hopes and aspirations for their own country. And I suppose, suppose the broader context for this is that um, the early 20th century in Colombia is largely considered to be a kind of peaceful pause in the country's history uh, between two violent civil wars, um, the one at the end of the, the 19th century, and then La Violencia, which broke out from the mid to late 1940s and going into the 1960s. And the in-between period is, as I said, mostly considered to be uneventful. And what I actually think was happening at this time is there wasn't an outright civil war, there wasn't outright conflict, but there were very important ideological debates, uh, perhaps you could even call it an ideological conflict going on at the time in Colombia about what their country was and what it should be. And because of the perceived parallels between Colombia and Spain, um, so, uh, I mean, going back to the question on the importance of politics, um, many Colombians, as did many South Americans, drew parallels between their, the political situation at home and the situation in Spain, and therefore argued that what happened in Spain could happen in Colombia um, or in other South American nations. And in the case of Colombia, um, in the 1930s, it was the end of the conservative hegemony and the introduction of a more progressive uh, liberal regime that attempted to introduce, uh, I wouldn't call them revolutionary reforms, but perhaps that's how they were perceived at the time, particularly by more traditional opponents. And that um, superficially parallels the situation in Spain with the, the 1931 introduction of the Spanish Republic, which brought to an end the dictatorship of uh, Primo de Rivera, and the Spanish Republic with its attempts to introduce uh, more reforms. And so because of these perceived parallels, because of the, the um, entanglement really that, that Colombia and many other Latin American nations had with um, Spain that Kevin so eloquently described um, when he was talking about his research, um, the Spanish Civil War was considered by Colombians to be extremely important, uh, both globally, but also specifically to them. Um, and because it was considered to be so important, there was such broad coverage of it. I think there's a statistic, a crazy statistic that the Spanish Civil War didn't lead, leave the um, front pages of the main newspapers until like mid 1938 or something. Um, and because of this wide interest in the Spanish Civil War and its perceived importance for the country, I think that it will be a really useful way to kind of interrogate some of these ideological debates that were going on in Colombia in the 1930s. Um, and within this, I think that much like what Kevin was saying, there will be um, lots of reconceptualizations of the relationship with Spain, particularly from the liberals who tended to be um, more uh, anti-imperialist than the uh, conservatives. And yet the liberals, many liberals, many leftist Colombians were strong supporters of the Spanish Republic. Um, and, um, you know, many other issues that will come into play, I'm sure, but um, in this very early stage of my research, it's hard to say what they will be. 
Um, but that's broadly what I'm hoping to do with my project. Yeah, thank you. So my research is really driven by, by two questions. Um, first is looking at the interwar period and far right-wing politics. Um, famously, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, for example, which had about three to four million members. Uh, but more important to my research, or at least more, more so, especially to the Spanish Civil War, is the figure Father Charles Coughlin, who was a radio broadcaster and a, and a Catholic priest in the Depression era 1930s uh, United States, who had anywhere from 30 to 40 uh, million weekly listeners at the height of his fame, 1936 to 1938. My question is, is what would be the appeal of these movements or figures um, who have been largely denounced as fascistic or very far right um, anti-Semitic? In our own time, why would they have such a large appeal? And then, second question is: Is where did these followers go um, after, let's say, the, the KKK dissolved and declined in the 1920s, or after Father Coughlin was essentially kicked off the air in 1942? Where did these large followings go? And the Spanish Civil War and the Americans who supported Franco is an interesting way of getting at that question because um, I don't know if I mentioned the. There weren't actually very, well, weren't very many, um, only probably about one in eight Americans supported Franco during the Spanish Civil War, um, roughly about 20 million Americans at that time, um, which depending on how you look at it might seem like a small number, it also might seem like a very large number given what we know about American politics. Um, and that when I discovered that that was that many millions of Americans supporting Franco, much higher than any Americans who would have ever given that sort of lip service uh, to other traditional fascistic dictators, uh, Mussolini or, or Hitler for sure, uh, is where do they all go after the Spanish Civil War? And the interesting thing is they don't, they don't go anywhere. Um, and in fact, whereas America joins you know, the allies in World War II and goes and fights Mussolini and Hitler, uh, very obviously defeats fascism as, as their narrative goes, Franco is still widely celebrated in the post-war era by American conservatives, famously William Buckley and his, and his brother-in-law Brent Bozel in a National Review, um, but also even into the 1980s um, with Ronald Reagan saying that, you know, the Americans who went off and died uh, fighting Franco were fighting on the wrong side, right? So there's still this narrative that carries that far forward. That, that Franco was the correct side. So my research is really interested in how Americans come to square supporting uh, a fascist uh, authoritarian dictator or supporting even values of those dictators, um, most prominently anti-communism with their own professed, you know, American and, and Christian values and beliefs. And what I'm trying to do with this research also is looking at as I mentioned, Coughlin is sort of seen as this, you know, that's the closest that the United States ever got to fascism, right? But if you read fascist studies traditionally, you know, this is, it's usually considered European phenomenon. It only really took hold in Italy and Germany and some other countries, maybe Austria, Hungary, Romania, um, depending on who you ask. Although now there's more of a push to look at a more transnational lens, bringing in Latin America, especially. Uh, but also Asia as well. But the United States is still never really seen as, as having a fascist movement. Um, so my question is, is why, um, or how did the United States even relate to fascism, even if figures like Coughlin weren't calling for, say, a revolutionary overthrow, right, of the US government, 
they were still very much in support of a lot of what fascism stood for, which was this ultra nationalism, which was this cultural chauvinism, uh, this sort of ethnic um, hierarchy, this sort of, you know, very anti-Semitic in the case of Coughlin, um, this authoritarian hierarchical sort of politics that you see carry over into conservatism, um, a lot of it, though certainly uh, diluted in, in quite a number of ways. And so fascism is, is a really interesting way to sort of get at that, you know, look through that lens and say, how, how does the United States in the interwar period compare with countries, other countries? Um, and what's interesting, of course, is fascism is very different and different because it, it's based as an ultranationalist ideology, it's based very much on traditions and cultures within the countries it inhabits. And in the United States, um, this sort of civic religion, as, as one could call it, but also just this very Christian, um, not necessarily Protestant, although that can definitely be a factor, um, American identity is extremely important to looking at far right-wing ideology. And you just see it with the Spanish Civil War, the political aspects and effects of what happens when that when that ideology gets mobilized politically, and in this case, um, you know the the Catholic action groups in the United States that came out um, in a campaign essentially lobbying the United States government, um, however successfully uh, to keep the embargo in place. I mean, successful in the sense that the United States did keep that embargo in place, though it's it's difficult to imagine a scenario where Roosevelt right, would have started shipping arms to the loyalists. It, it, I, I've, I've also kind of wanted to push back against the theory that it was American Catholics um, who pushed Roosevelt not to uh, lift the embargo. I don't think that they're, they're, he would have had any reason, especially with his biggest allies, Great Britain and uh, France not joining uh, in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the loyalists. There doesn't seem like there would have been a lot of reason for him to do so as well. Um, but anyways, it's, it's important to see how that sort of relationship of religion and far right-wing politics actually does have political valences uh, that are very important to study. Your point there on the idea of how fascism develops in the USA and like if, if there is a reaction, if there's not a reaction or development, reminded me of uh, a comment from Eric Hobsbawm in his essays on Latin America. And he argues that uh, European ideas such as fascism, when they arrive into Latin America, they, they develop in their own idiosyncratic ways due to the, you know, the distinct nature of Latin American society and culture and politics. So it's interesting. It'd be interesting to know how applying that same idea that Hobsbawm has for Latin America, how that also influences North America and the United States. Um, yeah, so move on now to some more specific questions to individual speakers and start with Austin. So the interwar period in global history is often overlooked. And most people are looking at the you know, 1914 World War I and then moving on to World War II and these concepts of national narratives of great wars uh, in defense of the nation. So I was wondering, Austin, what you thought of why study the interwar period in US history? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, there's really three prongs you sort of have to work through, or three obstacles, I should say. First is when studying the interwar period in the United States, there's this notion of isolationism, right? That the United States is 
you know, and, and diplomatically, right, the, the United States does not want to get involved in, in foreign affairs, at least not anything like in World War I, when it went and joined what it later considers a European war. Famously, the United States refused to join the League of Nations. Um, and in, in 1924, with immigration, it, it restricts a lot. So there's a sense that America is closing its doors in a way. Uh, but the problem with that narrative of isolationism is that it makes it seem like the United States was aloof from world affairs or unconcerned with what was going on elsewhere in the world. And that's absolutely not true. Uh, headlines are constantly talking about, you know, the rise of Mussolini, say, in Italy, um, the rise of other fascist groups coming about, uh, the spread of communism, for example, um, when the Great Depression hits. There's more talk of, of this, you know, this guy Hitler is really turning Germany around, for example. Uh, then there's Mussolini invading Ethiopia, which becomes a, a huge deal in the United States, as well as the Spanish Civil War, which is another current I'm sort of pushing against, the, the notion that the United States was unconcerned. Um, certainly, Americans were not, the majority of, were not partial to one side or the other, but they were still deeply concerned, not necessarily about fascism winning against democracy or you know communism defeating uh christianity as much as they were worried about another european war breaking out which is what the spanish civil war sort of foretold so pushing against isolationism is one thing another thing about the interwar period is it's anti-communism and the presence of anti-communism famously you know in, in conservative histories in the united states or i should say histories of conservatism Anti-communism isn't really seen as a political force until McCarthyism and the Red Scare of the 1950s, right? That's its most famous iteration, uh, the McCarthy witch hunts. But anti-communism is still very much an influence on American politics in the 1930s. Famously, or more famously, you know, the conservative oppositions to the New Deal, um, whether it's by figures like Coughlin that I mentioned or conservatives more generally, you know, the New Deal is seen as this, uh, for, and for those who don't know, New Deal is, is Roosevelt's uh, reforms, um, trying to handle the Great Depression by, by sort of increasing the power of the federal state. Um, you know, the New Deal is, is seen by these conservative coalitions um, or disparate groups as socialistic or communistic in and of itself. This is inviting communism into the United States. And these opposition groups start to come together and form what would later be the post-war uh, conservative coalition. But you also see anti-communism erupting immediately after the Russian uh, revolution um, in the you know, late 19-teens, early 1920s. Um, and actually a lot of the nativist uprisings, whether it's the immigration restriction I mentioned, or as I mentioned earlier, the, the Ku Klux Klan are also responding to the Russian Revolution. They also don't want immigrants coming. They don't want immigrants bringing communism um, because they believe that that will destroy American life, American values, et cetera. So looking at the, the interwar period in that lens and, and focusing on you know getting rid of that idea of isolationism and looking at this international conversation that's happening and this international conversation that is a reaction to communism, which in other countries, anti-communism in Italy, for example, is, is what Mussolini uses to get to power, or in Germany, what Hitler uses to get into power. So anti-communism has a very important role um, 
in shaping 20th century politics, uh, especially interwar anti-communism. And then finally, the third, the third obstacle is just um, something that's, I guess, become sort of a pet peeve of mine is uh, the sort of uh, tin ear that a lot of historians tend to have towards religion um, in the United States, especially, um, where religion is, is usually seen as sort of a, a mask or a cover for you know, ulterior motives, or, or really they're just seeking power. Uh, so for example, when Coughlin is, is discussed as being a radio priest, his actual Catholic nature is not really discussed, or the, the, the Catholic influences on his ideology are not discussed, right? That he's just a, a power-hungry populist or demagogue. And what's, what's sort of missed in seeing the way that religion is operating in the interwar period and religion, uh, uh, this American Christian identity in opposition to communism, um, you, you miss basically how it makes sense and how it there's this sort of appeal to so many millions of Americans that's not antithetical to their values to suddenly be supporting these dictators or what we might consider right-wing or fascistic ends, because for them, it's a defense of their religion and it's a defense of their American identity. So with those three things, with interwar, um, isolationism, anti-communism, religion, I think are, are extremely important to understanding uh, not only our nation's history, but more broadly, even, even international history as well. Thanks for sharing those three obstacles there, and hopefully we can work towards understanding these these three uh, concepts so that we can raise more attention for this interwar period of what is an important phase in, in world history. So moving to uh, Kevin, I'm going to ask a more kind of personal reflective question and discuss the, the challenges of uh, transnational history. So doing global history is you know, it's a fairly new new development and it's very difficult because of the, you know, the, the distances that people often have to travel and the different languages that we need to speak. And I was wondering, Kevin, what have the challenges and benefits been for you doing a transnational history project as a PhD project? Yeah, I think uh, for my research, the benefits have been in writing transnational history is that they help us contextualize how certain types of ideas and feelings are emanating from you know populations whether they're very rural enclaves to industrial centers and regarding the consequences of global conflicts that may be thousands of miles away and as a historian that focuses specifically on the history of working class and peasants the working class people and peasants in mexico uh I was really interested in the par the parallels and similarities that I saw amongst the ideas and, and interests of Spanish working class people and peasants as well. And so it's given this really great opportunity to reconceptualize how outside of formal networks of immigration or formal networks of diplomacy do everyday people interact with people from around the world. Now, the challenge of that, is, especially for graduate students, is to be able to obtain funding for researching in multiple countries and multiple archives. And I was very fortunate that I was able to get uh, research funding from the Social Science Research Council and the Fulbright-Hayes to conduct uh, multi-site archival research. Um, but that's not so simple for folks, especially in the United States, and I'm sure throughout Europe and the UK, is that there's been a, a massive 
cutbacks in, in state and institutional support for the humanities and social sciences. So it makes it difficult for graduate students who may have these really great ideas of doing transnational research projects to actually implement them. Um, however, the growing digitalization of archives and library collections throughout the world is opening up new opportunities where students can do this kind of research without having to physically go to those countries. However, I think we have to be careful um, because a part within the earlier fields of or publications of transnational studies, we tended to see a focus where the secondary or third country that's being analyzed is kind of not given as much significance or uh, importance in the overall analysis. And that's really truly the difficult part of doing transnational history is understanding where two very different societies or multi-societies are coming from and why they're coming to the conclusions they are. However, I think we're now seeing uh, really amazing work coming out that is successfully taking on that challenge and showing really interesting ways to engage with these histories. And specifically in regards to the Spanish Civil War in Latin America, uh, there's been some really great work from Ariel May Lamb and Kirsten Weld, who have published recently uh, kind of transnational histories of the influence of the Spanish Civil War in Latin America. So I think hopefully it gets easier for students to do this kind of research um, through the digitalization of archives and library collections. And we continue seeing people making those connections of how interconnected people have been over, you know, not just in the 20th century, but throughout uh, centuries of world history. Thanks. I'm actually going to ask a sub question on that, Kevin. Uh, and just out of interest, I was wondering what you thought of the idea that in order to do global history, it's necessary to go and explore these countries uh, to have that visceral experience within the archive, that personal emotional engagement with the documents as well as existing in the, in the environment that this history developed, uh, especially in the case of 20th century history, where it is still quite recent. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's really critical. And that's a great point to bring up is that you know, uh, there is, the, especially in the United States, we have huge archival collections where people could do transnational histories without ever visiting the countries that they're studying. And while that could be useful in some instances, it's really important for us to have conversations with people from those communities um, and to see how that interacts with them. And, and so as a public facing scholar, I think it's really critical to be able to make connections to those countries, especially in the case of Latin American history, where a lot of transnational histories have focused on the US's relationship to Latin America, but often do not go to Latin American archives or engage in uh, even looking at the literature that's been produced in those countries. And I think we're doing a disservice to uh, researchers in the United States and throughout the world when we do that, because we're not giving a full context of how this has been engaged with by scholars from these countries, um, as well as getting a full grasp of the, the countries that are relating to that, that kind of primary focus. Um, and so it's, again, this raises a really difficult 
issue for graduate students with you know very limited means, but it I think it's very important for us to uh, engage in the literature as well as the cultures in which we're studying. I mean, for me, it was a little bit easier being Mexican to kind of be able to engage with Mexican history. However, I, I going to Spain was really important to me because I was able to get not just archival research done, but to talk to people and engage with them and their opinions of what some of the ideas I had uh, for my research were. And I, I'm really indebted to them for sharing their ideas and their sentiments about uh, this transnational relationship. And it's been really influential on my, on my research. So I think it's definitely a, a great advantage for scholars to, to do transnational history and engaging in the countries in which they're studying. Thanks for sharing those experiences with us, Kevin. Um, so Charlotte, this one's more specific to the UK context. So Latin America is called the Forgotten Continent in Michael Reed's book uh, that came out a few years ago. Uh, often people in the UK ignore Latin America because it's not part of its formal imperial past, uh, despite its long informal imperial connections there from the conquest with the Spanish or post-independence Latin America where Britain is financing wars and financing state development, as well as enforcing certain informal uh, dimensions of imperialism to that relationship. So I was wondering, Charlotte, uh, what are the challenges and benefits of studying Latin American history in, in Great Britain? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I think um, your kind of introduction to it gave a very um, good overview of the fact that um, there is less interest in Latin America as a whole in Britain, uh, perhaps in comparison to the United States. Um, and this has various knock-on effects which present challenges for research students. So um, I suppose firstly, it means that there are less departments specifically related to the study of the regions. Although that said, there are definitely some excellent ones. Um, but I know many uh, universities in the US have a, a specific department that is um, dedicated to studying Latin America, and that isn't uh, largely the case in Britain. And this then limits the possibilities for the study of Latin America in Britain, because research students um, who want to study in the country are limited by the limited research expertise that there is. Um, uh, perhaps one benefit of that, though, is that, um, I mean, history as a field is always criticised for not engaging with um, other disciplines, and perhaps the fact that there are so few uh, Latin Americanists in Britain means that the centres that there are tend to be um, multidisciplinary, um, which can lead to some uh, really excellent um, research projects and research findings. So uh, that could kind of be the, the flip side of that, I suppose. Um, but unfortunately, the, the fact that there's less interest in Latin America also means that there are a few archives relating to the re region, which means if you do want to study Latin America, um, you have to travel there, which is obviously expensive and perhaps would discourage certain uh, research students from 
choosing that uh, that route. And um, it's also kind of reflected in the funding that's available. A lot of um, there are a lot of bodies that offer funding to research students to carry out um, research abroad, but the amounts offered most of the time don't even cover the return fare to um, the the Latin American continent or Latin American region. Um, and so, you know, it's this still uh, perhaps a disconnect between um, the funding available and uh, the, the research that people want to carry out. Um, and I suppose this is the, the issue of archives is particularly relevant at the moment because um, when something happens, it means you can't travel to Latin America or the, the archives are closed or, or whatever. Um, your research stalls because there's nowhere in Britain really that you can go to look at anything related to the Latin American region. And this is obviously the issue that I'm, I'm currently faced with in my own research. Um, so yeah, it does present a lot of challenges, but it is rewarding. Um, I really enjoy it. I would absolutely echo what Kevin said about the importance of going to the countries that you study. Um, I'd actually lived in Colombia before I started my PhD and that's kind of where my interest started. Um, so it's definitely a rewarding experience, but not necessarily an easy one. Thanks, that was a really interesting reflection on the how in Latin American studies, because we're so few people in the UK, that it does actually really encourage interdisciplinary work. And I probably wouldn't have ever read magical realism or anything like that in terms of literature had, you know, had I not chosen to be in that Latin American department and engage with those other people that I meet at different conferences and workshops and just chatting after seminars over a coffee. Uh, so a recurrent theme here that's coming out is the, the idea of money. Um, so I was wondering if, if each of you could kind of summarize very quickly why this history matters and therefore you know why uh, it deserves more funding and more support uh, so Charlotte if you could start us off yeah of course um, so in terms of my particular research um, as briefly as possible um, in 2018 which was when I was applying for my PhD there were presidential elections in Colombia and the final two candidates were the more right-wing Ivan Duque who's now the president and um, ex guerrilla member and left-wing politician Gustavo Pedro and all of a sudden um, the Spanish Civil War was bringing up as a point of uh, comparison and that trend has continued to the present day. So I think uh, at the end of last year, I read another article that again was comparing the situation in Colombia now to the situation in Spain in the 1930s. Um, so now, as back then, the Spanish Civil War is used by Colombians as their chosen point of reference for when there is perceived political polarization or, or perhaps political uh, tension in their country. And so I suppose. I hope that by exploring how the Spanish conflict was interpreted and used by Colombians in the 1930s, we can also learn a bit more about Colombian politics since, and particularly at the moment when there's kind of been this resurgence of um, interest in the Spanish Civil War and its relation to Colombian society. Thanks, and Austin, how would you justify this, this research for modern society? Why, why is it important? Yeah, no, that's that's such a great question. 
Um, I think probably the, the number one thing I would want to point to is a lot of times when reading about maybe the far right in, especially in the interwar period, it's seen as an aberration from the, the normal trajectory of American politics. And what I want to do is push against that and suggest that perhaps while the United States was never under any serious threat from say a, a fascist takeover or, or anything quite uh, as the scale we see in, in Mussolini's Italy or certainly Hitler's Germany, nonetheless, we can still learn from the past, especially in the case of like the Spanish Civil War, um, the way that, that twin languages of patriotism and religion, which are, are really more inseparable uh, than not, are used to mobilize uh, for political ends. And we see this happen again and again throughout American history. As I've already mentioned, that relationship is, is important in understanding the emergence of conservatism after World War II um, and how it mobilized against uh, communism during the McCarthy era through the John Birch Society and um, the culture wars even of, of the 1990s after the Reagan era, for example. Um, and most importantly, I would say even to today um, in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump and his support by, you know, patriotic American Christians, um, whether they be evangelicals, a great number of Catholics, Mormons, etc. And the prevalence of that religious patriotic rhetoric throughout his presidency, um, which I would say, you know, terminating in, in sort of a more uh, serious note toward the insurrection or coup or or riot, however you want to describe it, of January 6th, um, when Trump's rhetoric of, you know, saving the nation from the radical left, you know, that same language that's being used during the Spanish Civil War in the United States, these radical Marxists, this radical left are, are coming to take away your freedoms, what it means to be an American, um, is used to mobilize once again um, to uh, the death of, of police officers at the Capitol, of many of the rioters themselves, uh, storming the Senate chamber. And as more and more information comes out, you know, of what specifically those uh, uh, supporters of Trump were, were willing to do uh, to politicians they disagreed with in service to this notion of saving the United States, of, of protecting it from this, this radicalism uh, that is so inimical to to Christian American interests. And I think that understanding how that language has been mobilized in the past and how it works um, and how that ideology um, becomes embedded and, and rooted in the American mind is very important to understanding politics today. Thanks for that response. And uh, finalizing with Kevin, uh, why is this history relevant for modern society? Yeah, so my research was very much influenced by the current refugee crises that were going on and still going on in Europe and the United States. Um, and I was really interested in how we as societies respond to the voluntary and involuntary movement of people as it's becoming increasingly important to figure out due to displacement, not only by war, but by climate change. And as an historian looking at Mexico, a country that is often characterized by its mass immigration uh, to the US, um, I think it's important to look at also the ways that Mexico has dealt with issues around asylum seekers uh, when the rest of the world turned them away. And so it gives us a, a really interesting glimpse of 
of how people deal with refugee crises, especially by kind of turning the, the perspective away from that refugee crises are crises of the migrant population, but they're just as much a crisis of the societies that are taking them uh, because of how they imagine what refugees can contribute to their society. So that's all my questions. Um, so I'm just going to conclude now. And I thank our participants for taking the time to help prepare this production and for working with us. Thank you also for your flexibility to overcome the challenge of being in three different time zones. Furthermore, I want to thank our followers of the Scottish Centre for Global History. Your support and passion for history continue to motivate our team to promote graduate research and to increase the learning and enjoyment of global history. Thank you.